Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you this evening? Friends, I come to you tonight with a heavy heart. Last week... Brother Will opened up and let you knew that he had been laid low by a pain in his posterior. He is still laid low. But friends, let me tell you this. The solution has been laid upon my heart. Friends, if you simply subscribe to this show by giving only a dollar. I believe in my heart that Brother Will's anus will be healed. Amen. It will be healed. Amen. If you subscribe to this show for just a dollar. And friends, if you give Brother Will and Brother Matt that dollar, I believe that dollar will return to you. Tenfold. Yeah, my ass still hurts, Matt. Oh, I am sorry. I think everyone is at this point suffering from something or another. This friggin' season, my allergies have been... My head is finally clear after two weeks of like intense sinus pressure. But it has done this thing where my nose is now raw and unpleasant. And I've been having like... Random nosebleeds, which is so much fun. You know, you sit there, I sit there, I sneeze, and the next thing I know, it's like, oh, well, I've got to wedge a tissue up my nose. That's that's not fun. Especially not when you're at work. Really not good. Glad I have an office to myself. (laughs) Uh, But uh, do subscribe to the Patreon. Yes. We are at 13 patrons. Seven more, and we're going to talk some Uh, Star Trek. Seven more. We were talking Star Trek off air. Uh, we could st- we could talk Star Trek on air for you. We absolutely could. And you know what? If the, that episode where we rank all the Star Trek movies you know, comes comes together, maybe you know if we keep it that twenty level for a while, we might talk some other Star Trek in longer form than our usual you know ten to fifteen minute rambles at different points during a batman related episode nah we could we could talk our favorite next gen episodes matt could maybe finally get me to watch some ds9 oh oh yes you know you're gonna have to uh friend of wmq third amigo rob lynch and i've been talking about you know as this is the 30th anniversary of ds9 year uh recording a couple of episodes of something the two of us talking ds9 and putting them somewhere out there. So you know, maybe it would be like, hey, well, you're going to watch a couple episodes. And you're going to come on. You're going to talk to me and Rob about some some DS9. Uh, the, the thing where Will still doesn't know anything about anything across different podcasts. You will come to appreciate DS9 in the same way that that first season of Next Gen is rough. The first season of DS9, not quite as rough as the first season of Next Gen. It would be hard to be 
as rough as the first season of next year. Yes, yes. But by the end of the second season, DS9 really gets kicking. And it, yeah, it's 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 good. It, yeah, I don't want to say any more, but I was just re-watching The Wounded, the first episode of Next Gen that introduces the Cardassians. And it's like, wow. I, oh, is, is, uh, is that the one with uh, basically O'Brien as the star? Mm-hmm. Ah. O- O'Brien's PTSD episode? Yeah. That was a good guest spot from whatever character actor that was. The guy who was the the warden in the Shawshank Redemption, who's the captain there. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Uh-huh. That's and, where I was trying to place him. Yep. And the main Cardassian there, the actor goes on to play the main Cardassian, a different character, but another Cardassian in DS9. I still remember the the perfect way that Patrick Stewart played that last scene in that episode with the Cardassian, where he's on He's in the observation lounge and Picard is just staring straight ahead and just basically acknowledges, yes, everything that this deranged captain said was right. You are engaging in this behavior that he says, but under the terms of our treaty, I can't do anything about it. Get the fuck off my ship. Mm -hmm. I do, watching it, did wonder though, it's like, if sometimes the writers here didn't quite understand what ally means, like you could have a treaty of non-aggression but they're not your ally. They're calling the Cardassians allies at the beginning. It's like, no, they're just not actively fighting you. Yeah, that seems much more like a Cold War than any type of, like, friendliness. Yes. And the the more you see DS9, the more that becomes obvious. Because the Cardassians are terrible. And they only get worse. You would appreciate some of the stuff on DS9, especially the Cardassian tailor on the station, Garrick, because he's the best. He might be my favorite character across all Star Treks, just because he's just this delightfully wry. You're never entirely sure what angle he's playing, whether or not he's a spy, whether or not he's an exile. And he's played by Andrew Robinson, who... If you've ever seen the first Hellraiser or the first Dirty Harry, he's the killer in the first Dirty Harry and the creepy monster guy in the first Hellraiser, not Pinhead, the one who's summoning the Cenobites. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he he doesn't play Pinhead. No, that, that's the guy whose name I can't remember. The guy who plays Pinhead. Right, exactly. Someday I will get you to watch some DS9. Last word. Let me tell you something to not do just as you're about to go to sleep. Do not uh, watch deleted scenes from the fly. Very unsettling. Uh, Would not recommend. Sounds like not something to do before going to sleep. And I listen, I love horror in general, but I tend to not do horror right before bed. Yeah. Mm mm. Uh, it's why i leave one of those you know fun all ages dc books on my nightstand because that that sends you right off to sleep and i don't think there has ever been quite a movie that's like i love it but i can't watch it like the fly there's some scenes that you just can't look at especially the the finished brundle fly 
Oh, oh, oh. Trying to come up with a good segue, and I don't know if there is a segue. If we were going in non chronological order, there's a, a rotting corpse in the the last story we're doing tonight. But I want to do these in chronological order, so yeah, that's my segue. Wait, you'll see a rotting corpse. S- several different iterations of a rotting corpse, indeed. Because the artist couldn't pick one. Oh, we will. Oh, we will definitely get there. This week, we step into the darkest shadows and find three tales of a league of assassins. The first story of the evening is "You Can't Hide from a Dead Man." This is the Brave and the Bold, number eighty-six. The writer is Bob Haney, with art by Neil Adams. No colorist is credited. Letters by John Costanza, edited by Murray Boltonoff with a cover date of November of 1969. Why is Batman's ally, the spirit hero known as Dead Man, trying to kill him? And what plans do the League of Assassins have for the mysterious city of Nanda Parbat? You have, have you ever read any old school Brave and the Bold except for that one Swamp Thing issue we did? Uh, no. This uh, this makes two, and, and I'll, I'll tell you this because it's not connected to, well, it's vaguely connected to, to other stories we're going to talk about tonight. I almost messaged you asking if we could read this one. And let me read you the plot summary for 87. When Willie Van Dort, son of the Nazi war criminal General Van Dort, plans to use unsportsmanlike means to win a race by having Bruce Wayne attacked, Batman enters the race and with the help of Wonder Woman and I Ching, mm-hmm. I Ching, wins the race instead of Van Dort, who was willing to win by any means, even murdering Batman. And I was like, that sounds dumb as hell. I want to read that. Welcome to the world of Bob Haney. (laughs) Bob Haney wrote, I don't know how many, I I was going to say a hundred, that might be an exaggeration, but if it is, it's not by much. Of these early Batman Brave and the Bolds from the 50s, for quite a ways. Haney was a wild fucking writer. His stuff is so utterly out there. He's the guy who created the Teen Titans as a concept. He's the guy who didn't really bother to care about continuity. So when he created the Teen Titans in their second appearance, because the first appearance, it was Robin, Kid Flash, and Aqualad. In the, the next one, he's like, you know what? I want to add a girl. Let me put Wonder Girl on the team. Problem is, Haney didn't actually read anything, not realizing that Wonder Girl was just Wonder Woman when she was younger, like Superboy. So he created a completely new character because he didn't care about continuity. And that is why Donna Troy is a goddamn continuity mess from there on out. Nice. And editorial's like, sure, sure, dude, go for it. Brave and the Bolds were often said to exist on their own world in the multiverse because you could not get them to jibe with anything else that was happening anywhere. Someday we will hopefully have co-host of the wonderful podcast, Tighten Up the Defense, Hub, on this show to talk some Haney Brave and the Bold. Because Hub is a huge fan of these crazy 60s, 70s Haney comics. 
it's really going to be something as they're just about to bring back the title with none of the charm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Raven the Bold. I think that's next week, buddy. It is? Yep. A book headlined by Tom King retelling the first meeting of Batman and the Joker, which I'm sure isn't going to be just an exercise in formalism that will not be anywhere near as enjoyable as that original story or The Man Who Laughs. Why not go and redo a story that Ed Brubaker and Doug Monkey did 15 years ago in a really solid reinterpretation of that story for modern times when you could get Mitch Jarrods to do, you know, 20 something pages of nine panel grids. Yes. The pinnacle of the art. But instead we're talking about this iteration of Raven the Bold, which by the way, when you look at it, the, the second generation started out with Mark Wade and George Perez. So all it was, was retro silver age fun. Nonetheless, I, I, I can't. If I do, I'll just start going down a, a path. But this is one of the early appearances of Dead Man. Dead Man started out in a, a Strange Adventures, which was an anthology series in a series of stories there. And then when that series ended, he hopped over to do a couple of Brave and the Bolds. And so here we have his co-creator, Neil Adams, drawing a story with dead man suddenly possessing people and attacking Batman, which is a hell of a way to start a story. Haney stories might not in the long run hang together by making, you know, a lot of sense, but they are awfully fun. And by the way, it's not just Batman being hunted by dead man who's, you know, possesses bodies, but the first one he possesses, is Robin. So you get you start out with a Robin versus Batman fight, and then he possesses Jim Gordon, who takes a gun off an officer and tries to shoot him. Well, did not see that coming. That wasn't in my horoscope this morning. Uh no, the the Nazis in the next issue, Matt. But yeah, like the the possession is only a prelude to the real strangeness. Oh like, yeah. It's just getting you warmed up. As he appears in all three stories, let's get it right out of the way now. The sensei is a problematic character. Yeah. Yeah, especially when that's that's the whole name. Yeah. Sensei. If you are unfamiliar, the sensei is pretty much your typical yellow terror stereotype of a martial arts bad guy with the long Fu Manchu mustache and the martial arts mastery. At least he doesn't ever speak in a stereotypical phony accent. And correct me if I'm wrong, and this 85% chance that I am, in that final story we're going to talk about, he gets like kind of a twist in the background, right? Yes. That is an absolute full-on hardcore retcon. Okay, okay. And one that has never been followed up on. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't. But yeah, so here you have, I think we talked about it a little when we did that one issue of Gotham Adventures that kind of did Deadman's whole story in one issue. 
but dead man is a character that was formed around a lot of 60s orientalism and the otherism of asian culture by the way i know orientalism is not a i'm using it in the sense of the time i would never use that if addressing anything today because ye but he's got the sensei as one of his principal villains nanda parbat is this city that is basically a shangri-la riff and the various characters around him all play on various othered Asian stereotypes. Vashnu, the fortune teller, and all the characters around Nanda Parbat, and the fact that Ramakrishna, the goddess, takes aspects of Hinduism and sort of shuffles them around to be something that isn't exactly right. It is not something you could get away with today, and is thus often avoided or is at least dealt with somewhat more sensitively. But yeah, here the sensei is attempting to destroy Nanda Parbat because it is where evil men can go to try to find redemption, and he doesn't want to give them that opportunity, which seems awfully petty. It does. I also forgot in this issue, we also have twin Anigans. Yes. This is overstuffed. That is absolutely something you see in Haney comics. He just loves his crazy ideas and he just squeezes 10 pounds of crazy into a five pound bag. Some stories it works better than others. This one's a little too busy in that the, the end, the confrontation between Batman and dead man and the sensei and here they call them the society of assassins is really brief sensei and his guys don't really confront batman and dead man there's not much of a fight at the end of a 22 page comic that final fight is three or four pages at the end and it's not just that that's the fight it's that's pretty much the, the the confrontation between Batman and the villains. He doesn't meet the bad guys until the very end. Everywhere else he's fighting Dead Man or Dead Man is fighting the Society of Assassins. Oh, and of course it's always fun. Dead Man is Boston brand and his brother is Cleveland brand because his parents look through darts at a map to decide the names of their kids. Very cute. Could have been worse, could have wound up being Peoria brand, I guess. The setup for this story and why Dead Man is attacking Batman. So Dead Man was at Nanda Parbat, in it, leaving it something. And it was a place where he can be solid, where he can materialize. As he is leaving, he gets shot with poison, which doesn't kill him again, but it scrambles his brain. And someone convinces him that Batman is now his enemy. And so he goes after Batman. But when he returns to Nanda Parabat, the uh, poison is once again active as he is solid. It seems that way. It's that 
if he's solid, the poison can get him. Glorious comic book nonsense. And Cleveland is there at the end, and various twins are inhabited, and the not inhabited. A lot going on. And meanwhile, Sensei and his various cadre of assassins, the main assassin who was supposed to kill dead man's the unimaginatively named Willie Smith. Like, really? You know, the other League of Assassins are like, Merlin and The Hook and Cheshire and Willie Smith. Uh, is Willie the guy who looks like a Spaceball reject? Yeah. He, he's not one of the more imaginative or interesting characters in the as a member of the League of Assassins. And it was always like, okay, well... Dead man, you know, you need to keep having a reason for him to to not give up his existence and move on. It's like, okay, well, he needed to find the the hook-handed man who killed him. All right, well, he finds the guy. He's like, wait, no, the guy I, who shot me had his hook on his right hand. This guy had a hook on his left hand. It's the wrong guy. No, it happens all the time. Yep, and then it's like, oh, well, the sensei was the one who told him, who who, you know, made it his challenge to kill me, to get his entry into the Society of Assassins. So now it was really the sensei who was responsible for my death. So you have to keep rolling out the twists to keep Dead Man from just being like, yeah, I avenged myself. Peace out. See ya. But for all of the overpackings of it, this is Neil Adams and boy howdy, 1960s and 70s Neil Adams could draw the hell out of a story. Oh, yeah. Dead Man is a character that he he co-created. I'm saying that the minute I say it, it's like, wait, no, I think Carmen Infantino drew like the first Dead Man story. I think it's Adams just kind of defined the look of the character. But that the acrobatics are something that defines Dead Man and defines Adams' style here. He looks so cool when he's in Cleveland's body and is doing the trapeze act. And when he's fighting the assassins as he jumps into the body of one assassin out of Cleveland's body to turn the tables on them as they're shooting at Batman and Cleveland as they parachute down into the Himalayas. And the snow scenes look great. Yeah. Again, it's pretty book. And it, hey, it, it lets Adams draw all sorts of cool stuff because a million Different things happen in this story. Batman fights a blind man who's possessed by dead man. You don't see that every day. I guess unless Batman's fighting King Snake, then you do see him fight a blind man. Ah, but you see, Batman deduced that dead man really didn't want to kill him because he didn't just kill him. Which was something as I started reading this, I was like, you know, if he was going to kill him, why didn't he just step into his body and make him walk out into traffic? It's like, oh, right. In the end, Batman and Cleveland have to fight the assassins to get the cure for the poison. And I do love that Batman uses the the snowstorm and he and Cleveland in the dead man costume use the superstitious and cowardly lot stuff to really freak out the League of Assassins. It's a trifle. That is the definition of Brave and the Bold from this era. These are the trifliest of trifles. Which, Weird. As we, 
Oh, absolutely weird. What's funny is you looked at the next issue. Go back and if you look at the previous issue, the previous issue is one of the key issues of Brave and the Bold. Hmm. Because it's the one that Neil Adams redesigns Green Arrow and gives him the costume that we have always seen him in in the modern day and gives him the goatee. Since before that, he looked much more Robin Hoody. And it's the one where Bruce Wayne becomes a senator for a hot minute and it's never talked about again. The senator's been shot. I, I, just, I love this particular period of Brave and the Bold. Before that is Sergeant Rock. Before that is the one that is a riff on the Omen. Batman, is, the Teen Titans, and a possessed kid. Is this series where Suicide Squad got its start? Yes. The first 60 or so issues, this was a tryout book where DC would try new ideas. Suicide Squad, Teen Titans, Justice League, and the Silver Age Hawkman all first appeared in Brave and the Bold. Yeah, because I the Kindle app shows me like, the very beginning and like the first three issues are suicide squad and like huh yeah did not expect that no but the, it doesn't become the batman team up book until like the first couple of those are somewhere in the 50s or 50s or 60s and then it goes on from there. metamorpho makes his first appearance in brave and the bold it is a wild book 1959, of... first appearance of the Suicide Squad. Yep, oh. and that's the the original, like not the the concept as we think of it now, but that was a pure war comic with Rick Flagg Senior, which who is the character we see in New Frontier. You look at it, it starts out it's like Shining Night with Conniger, and it, it's a, a medieval action comic for a while, and then it becomes random superheroes and then it becomes superhero team-ups and then it specifically becomes batman team-ups for the latter two-thirds it's uh it's a sports comic oh yeah i read a lot of these when dc was doing the the showcase presents the big black and white phone books they did at least two if not three volumes of the batman team-ups and also i i remember pulling various issues of this out of dollar bins when I first started collecting. I read all kinds of fun ones from the end of this run. We're going to get some. There's some really great ones towards the end of the run. This has been your Brave and the Bold hour as we appreciate all sorts of fun comics of the, the Silver Age. Uh, Batman and Dead Man was also Brave and Bold 79. Yes. Yeah. If there are some characters who only appear once. Dead Man shows up a bunch of times. Green Arrow shows up a bunch of times. Flash. I think Metamorpho, because I believe Metamorpho was a Haney character as well. I don't know how many issues Haney did. I, I said before around 100. I might be wrong on that. It looks like he's credited at least until the 120s. Yes. Yep. And he started writing it consistently at 63, but did a lot of the issues before that with, you know, 
Oh, actually from about 50 on with a few issues missing and then a bunch in the teens and 20s as well. And the single digits. Wow. Haney had 50. Oh, wow. Haney. Yeah. Haney's final issue on the series was 157. Didn't do every issue in there, but he did a lot of them. Yeah. Haney and Aparo after Adams left. This book really is the, the Silver Age and the Bronze Age of DC Comics in microcosm. Another Dead Man appearance in 133. Again, the new title, not going to be anywhere near this interesting. No, someday we will also have to do some of the volume two because there's a Batman Green Lantern in there. There's Joker and the Atom in inner space with the atom going into the joker weird the atom goes into the joker's mind to cure him of a rare disease but not of his jokerness yep oh god it's wild i think we've run the course of as we're now just going talking about brave and the bold i believe that means it's time but the brave and the bold number 86 on the big board we are at 258 stories on the big board number one is still the post-crisis origin of batman batman year one number 50 is only takes a night the issue of catwoman where bruce and selena go out on a date and coming in at a sexy 69 is batman gotham nights number 32 24 7 at 100 is The Player on the Other Side, Batman Special Number 1. 150 is Sisters in Arms, the issue where Sarah Essen, Catwoman, and Vicky Vale stop some human traffickers. Number 200 is Grounded, the first issue of the Batman Beyond animated series tie-in. And hey, down at the bottom of 258, still White Knight. Feel terrible. So this one exists in Trifle Town. Going down, down, down to Trifle Town. The Delta Connection, the other issue we have, is down at 205. I, I think this is better than that, just for the Neil Adams art. I mean, that's got Naparo art, it's nice, but this one looks this one still looks better. Hey, what's what's the feeling on this? It's somewhere in the 170s, 180s. I don't think it's better than Mad Men Across the Water at 174. No, no, I, th- I think that's that's absolutely right. I was trying to find Joker's boner on the list. Uh, Joker's Comedy Virus is 177. Ah, yes, that uh, to me that's the that's the pinnacle of trifles. Yes, yeah, um, it does not does not beat Joker's Comedy Virus. Yeah, I saw that, and then like my brain like fried itself, and it's like, oh, Batman sixty six. Oh, that's not that's not Joker's boner. Oh, um, but it is. It <laughs> is just a delightful coincidence there. Um, so yeah, that's at one seventy seven. Madman across the water at one seventy four. You know, I've, I'm thinking we're looking in the one nineties because one ninety is Luthor. You're driving me sane, which is another trifle. But I, I like Luthor, you're driving me sane a little more. This is definitely better than Leaves of Grass, 196. Yes. I would also put it above Batman Noel at 193, because there's just no there there. Yeah. 
it actually is has some similar issues to 192, the last Batgirl story, in that they're both just a lot of stuff jammed into an issue and none of it gets enough time to percolate. I think this beats that just yeah. because of that. But I would put it below the one above that, Three Ghosts of Batman, which is Batman versus the big alpha male plus Bane Batman from Morrison. That would make this then the new 192. Yes, indeed. I think I'm going to be pedantic like you and put this down as the brave and the bold instead of Batman, the brave and the bold. Yes, because this is the brave and the bold. Batman, the brave and the bold is the animated series tie-in comic. The next story is The War of the Assassins. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, numbers 485 and 489 to 490. The writer is Denny O'Neill, pencils by Don Newton and inks by Dan Adkins, colored by Adrian Roy, lettered by Ben Oda, and edited by Paul Levitz. The cover dates are September of 1979 and March and April of 1980. Batman is drawn into a civil war in the League of Assassins, as Rachel Ghoul and the Sensei vie for control of the ancient order of killers. So this story's got more meat on its bones. Yeah, spread across three books in what was then an anthology series. It's it's interesting how it, it's quite clear that this is this is one of their feature stories, except for that middle chapter, which is just kind of short and then just stuck off there at the end. And it's also interesting how DC, for some trade or another, has recolored this story and then left the others alone. This was collected in the Tales of the Demon trade with those first Rachel Ghoul stories, the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams ones. So these were re- were touched up when it was included in the new edition of Tales of the Demon, I'm sure. But a lot going on in yes. these uh, in this book at the time. And this is the story that further ties Raish to the League. The League predates Raish. It's sort of retcon that Raish is the secret first master of the League of Assassins. Because it was the sensei who was the leader and there was Dr. Dark who was the leader. And then it's like, oh, Raish has been the guy in the shadows all along despite this schism here between the sect following Raish and the sect following the sensei it also is denny tying up some plot threads from the richard dragon series as this is where he brings bronze tiger and this is the story that feeds bronze tiger into the suicide squad a few years later tiger is on the squad because of the stuff that the League of Assassins did to his head. I will say, interestingly enough, as I'm opening 485, uh, DC also retouched uh, an Etrigan story by Lynn Ween. So I'm sure that wound up in a trade, of course. I bet there's a Lynn Ween trade or some kind of Etrigan anniversary thing that they did at some point or another. But Robin in the case of the cavorting corpse, no. But this, the first part of this story also feels a little bit like housekeeping in that it kills off Kathy Kane, the original Batwoman, who's a character who hadn't appeared in a number of years. It is an absolute friggin' fridging. 
Oh, my goodness. You almost expect a literal fridge to appear. Yeah, because it's like Raish basically arranges for the sensei's assassins to kill her to get Batman on their trail. It feels like Raish is genre savvy enough to be like, hmm, what can I do to get Batman to do this? Ah, a fridging. But but not someone who has appeared lately. Yes, a character who hasn't appeared in 20-something years. Aha! That is how we do this. This is the, the second major racial ghoul story after that original O'Neill Adams one. He'd have popped up here, but this is the next one that is sort of foundational to who Raish is and foundational to changing the League of Assassins into something that is more of an interesting threat by you know factoring them into Rachel Ghoul's backstory versus the sensei who's again still a very uncomfortable stereotype. Raish has granted some uncomfortable stereotypeness there too but nowhere near as bad as the sensei. Don Newton does a great job on the art in this story. There's a lot of of great fight sequences between Batman and Bronze Tiger and it's so strange to see a character who so easily handles Batman. One kick and he's down. It's not something you see nowadays. Now Batman would put up more of a fight than that, even if Bronze Tiger would eventually win. But here it's like, nope, takes him right out. Well, Batman wasn't prepared. Mm -hmm. Didn't know who Bronze Tiger was, which... I believe has been retconned since because now they're all part of that same school of training him and dragon and bronze tiger and lady Shiva. But at this point, this was a character who was only tangentially in the DC universe before is that Richard dragon series was in the DCU, but was sort of off to the side a little bit. Denny's writing this too. It's like, I like that character. I didn't do anything with him after Richard dragon. Let me bring him in here. Tie him into the League of Assassins, too. And from that first story, you go into, again, that that middle chapter, which is just feels like it's there to get us kind of from point A to point B. It's like, okay, we need to know, we need to give Batman some clues as to what the sensei is up to. So he has to go and rescue a geologist from the sensei at a carnival. Yeah. And why he would be after a geologist? Oh, you'll find that out in the final chapter. Right. The final chapter, which is... That's something else. That's That, that one has that late 70s, early 80s vibe to it and a, a real Denny O'Neill sort of thing. Denny O'Neill, the, the hippie who never quite stopped being a hippie with the... the religious leader who's so ultra pacifist and yet so stubborn that he's willing to let the earth literally swallow him up rather than be moved. But I will say great thing in uh, Detective Comics 49 matches Malone goes to a magic show. Everything's better with matches. Let me make sure that's 489. 
there's something wrong about Moon's involvement in all this. Moon being a magician, I think. And I can't put my finger on it. All the more reason for Matches Malone to observe the magician, his native element. Editor's note, Batman's underworld alter ego. But that is in a different story, not the League of Assassins. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry. It's all right. Something to cover another day. Just such a such a lovely, wild, fun book to just flip through. But yeah, that uh, that last chapter was very much. It, re- it reminded me of the uh, the plot in the Batman sixty six movie. You know, bringing all of the world leaders together and then scrambling their brains here. Uh, I guess accidentally scrambling their brains. The plot was to hold them hostage. Uh, but here, Race just wants to kill them. Uh, all of these. The world... sensei wants to kill them. Ah, that's right. That's right. Uh, these, all of these religious leaders huddled together in Gotham for, you know, reasons. Because that's the, the kind of thing we finally determined out the, the difference in Raish and the sensei's philosophies. Raish wants to use the league as a tool to forward his plans for world domination and such. While the sensei is an artist and this is his whole thing is murder for murder's sake. And so here he wants to kill all of these great religious leaders using a weapon that no one else has before. An earthquake. Yes. And but that that would seem to fit into a sort of race idea of orchestrating events and not necessarily killing people outright, kind of. But race would do it for a very specific reason to set off certain dominoes. Oh, of course. Here There's a the plan. Sen- yeah. Here the sensei is just like, I'd be really extra super famous for being evil for killing these guys. Yeah. Doing it in a unique and interesting way. I guess I'll just take credit for the earthquake. Yeah. I mean, he did plant explosives along the fault line, which is why he needed that geologist. That's one of those things that I'm always like, is that just movie science? Like, if, if you set off a big explosion at a fault line, you think it actually is going to cause an earthquake? I don't know about that. It'd be a big ass explosion. This is definitely not the first piece of media, or the only piece of media to to think about that, right? Wasn't that the plot of uh, View to a Kill? Didn't uh, Christopher Walken's Bond villain want to set off um, explosions on a fault line, and then like have new waterfront? property in california like wasn't that his plan that's lex luthor's plan from the first superman movie maybe it is but that that's where i remember that that luthor buys up all this desert land further in and then reroutes a nuclear test for nuclear missile to set off the san andreas fault so all of his land becomes the beachfront property ah Christopher Walken's character wanted to uh, detonate explosives along the Hayward and San Andreas faults to flood Silicon Valley. Ah. For reasons. Similar plan, different results, apparently. For Luthor, it's all about real estate. Lex Luthor in movies tends to be about real estate. It's weird. I found the bishop character, or the, the reverend character in that last story 
fascinating. This guy who's just there's shades of Leslie Tompkins there in his revulsion towards violence, but he also is so utterly stubborn. And at what point does stubbornness become stupidity? I don't know, but Batman certainly had his fill of it. I mean, it's like, okay, you know that someone is going to basically cause the earth to open up, swallow you whole. But I won't be moved. I won't be intimidated. It's not intimidation when they're, they've actually, I've said, I'm going to kill you and has a gun to your head. That is flat out, they're going to murder you. Is the world better or worse without you in it? Now, granted, he gets in the way of the sensei and sensei shoots him before the earthquake, but still. I can't get over how much Batman is just like, I can't with you. Like, he does the face palm. We have a face palm on page. I have been beaten. I have been shot. I've been subjected to fists and bullets and rockets and dynamite in order to save your life. And you dare, you dare refuse to have it saved? I'm not too far from agreeing with Bruce on this one. I could make you come. Oh, oh, whoops, whoopsie. Uh, I could hit you and carry you out, and I want to. I've never wanted to do anything more. But he doesn't. And then in the end, the building does collapse and seemingly take Raish and the sensei with it. Guess what? Neither of them are dead. <laughs> I also do love that Raish's servant here, not Ubu, but Lurk. It's like, you know, I my master sent me to here to stop the sensei's men from getting these explosives, but then I saw Batman and I had to, you know, fight him. And it's like, wow, dude, Raish gonna kill your ass. Raish does not take kindly to failure especially when you're going to kill Batman, who in general is not really about his hench dude's killing. This is still where Raish is very much like, sooner or later, you're going to become my heir. And this is very much the Talia who is torn between her father and Bruce, which was, you know, Talia's status quo for 30 years. We tend to forget just how much Talia was a character with minimal agency early on. Only after Tower of Babel does she really kind of like, you know what? Fuck you both. I have my own evil plans that I'm going to take out. I'm going to become a CEO of a multinational corporation, which is by far any more evil than anything you've ever done, Father. That sure does take a, uh, a long time for her, which is unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, you look at all of those other, the stories leading up to that, and it's always my father, my beloved, my father, my beloved, my father. Kind of a strange ending to this story. Yeah, the end where Bruce gets, you know, like a day in the mountains with Talia before he has to go back because now he feels like Kathy Kane has been avenged. Yeah, yeah. And Batman gets out of like the big dramatic moment by taking a dart to the back. Yeah. Denny likes to end these stories with this sort of 
well, maybe Bruce and Talia will be together thing. That's how that original Rachel Ghoul story ends. After, you know, the Batman and Rachel Ghoul shirtless sword fight, Batman just decks Raish, then kisses Talia, and then drags Raish through the desert on the back of a camel to bring him to justice. And that was the end of Raish. Yes, we, we didn't see him again and again and again for years and years to come. I, I think I'm good on this. Oh, that means it's time to put Detective Comics, The War of Assassins, on the big board. This one's up a little higher. This one's got more of a, a, a narrative. I actually think I, I can give you a, a place for this. I think okay. I don't think it's better. It's not better than Blades at 160, but I think it's better than Heart of Hush at 163. Yes. I was actually looking a bit up, uh, thinking about how you related this story to Brotherhood of the Fist at 145. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I ain't going to fight you uh, well, if you're thinking about 160s for this. That, that's also factoring in one of the stories that we have to look at again. Because I think Blades is one that when we were talking about re-ranking, I think Blades is one to be re-ranked. Yeah, because actually, I think this. No, I think you're right. Um, I actually I like Brotherhood of the Fist more. It's just it's so wild, and again, there's all those great monkeys. But this is definitely better than the Mud Pack at 149. Yes. Yeah, actually, I think this is better than most of that stuff down there. It's just Blades is in a weird place. I'm thinking 148. I like the Misfits at 147. That's that fun story with Killer Moth, Catman, Calendar Man, and Chance with Bruce and Armand Crawl and Jim Gordon trapped in a train car that's filling with water. Ah, you gotta have that uh, smoker's knife on you. Right. I, I think this goes below that, but above Hope at World's End. I think this is the new 148. Sounds good. Okay, everybody, you're going to have to bear with me on this one because this is a crossover, which means these credits are going to go on for a while. Oh, strap in, folks. This is the resurrection of Raish al Ghul. This is the crossover in Batman Volume 1, numbers 670 to 671 and Annual 26, Detective Comics Volume 1, 838 to 840, Robin Volume 2, 168 to 169 on Annual 7, and Nightwing Volume 2, numbers 138 to 139. The writers are Grant Morrison, Peter Milligan, Fabian Nicieza, Paul Dini, and Keith Champagne. Pencils by Tony S. Daniel, Freddie E. Williams II, David Baldian, Don Kramer, Carlos Rodriguez, Brian Benjamin, David Lopez, Jason Pearson, and Dustin Nguyen. Inks by Jonathan Glapian, Freddie E. Williams II, Steve Bird, Wayne Foucher, Bit, Salim Crawford, Alvaro Lopez, Jason Pearson, and Derek Friedolfs. Colors by Guy Major, Studio F, John Callas, and Patricia Mulhill. Letters by Travis Lanham, John J. Hill, Steve Wands, Philip Balsman, and Randy Gentle. And edited by Mike Marks and Janine Schaefer. The cover dates are October of 2007 to March of 2008. Risen from the Grave, Rachel Ghoul is a disembodied spirit seeking the perfect host body, and he believes it is his grandson, Damien, the son of Batman and Talia. 
While Raish hunts Damien, the sensei once again seeks to destroy Nanda Parbat, this time to prevent Raish from accessing the magic there that might restore him. There's a lot in this crossover, and yet it doesn't feel like there's enough in this crossover. Yeah, yeah, we we talked about this. Like, I feel like there's parts of the story that I'm missing. Like, exactly what happens with Raish's first body. I lost track of what happened to the white ghost after he fell in the... Uh, the Lazarus pit. Of course, he just sh- shows up later. I guess he sh- he had been fine or showed up previous to that. I I don't know. It's weird and what? weirdly paced at times. Yes, one thing that I feel like is you've got four writers. Keith Champagne is mentioned as the fifth writer. He just wrote that little Robin Annual chapter. That's a little interlude with Damien hunting, being hunted by ghosts. But Morrison was the ongoing writer on Batman at the time. Deanie was the ongoing writer of Detective at the time. But Peter Milligan, who's writing the Robin chapters, is not the ongoing writer on Robin. He was a fill-in writer who just did these couple of issues and maybe one before, before Chuck Dixon comes back for his second run and after Adam Beechin's run. And it's the same for Nicieza, who's on Nightwing, where in between Marv Wolfman's run and Peter Tomasi's run, Nicieza would eventually go on to write Robin after Dixon leaves. But it feels like those two were sort of like, hey, we just need you to to follow an outline here. And Milligan, as a writer, I find very, very hit and miss. Mm. the The quality in this uh, in this package, this crossover, is all over the place. Uh, Nightwing stuck out to me as something that was uh, exceptionally good, especially in the art. Art wildly inconsistent across these stories. Oh, good Lord, yes. You've got Ryan Benjamin doing the detective chapters, who's an artist who I have never been a fan of. Meanwhile, you've got Tony Daniel on Batman, who will go on to draw Batman for the next many years. He's the regular artist on the back half of this Morrison run, then will be the writer-artist on Batman during much of the Dick Grayson Batman era and the writer-artist on Detective in the New 52. But this is his earliest Batman stuff. But you've got Don Kramer on Nightwing doing a great job and Freddie E. Williams on Robin, who everything you said about his sort of marshmallowy faces and such from TMNT Batman is even more so here earlier in his career. Uh who's the um oh god I'm I'm paralyzed by indecision. Uh Ramita? John Ramita? John Ramita? Yeah, yeah. Uh who's the Ramita knockoff? That's Williams. Yeah. The blocky bodies and such. Yep. Yeah, that's that's the those are the Williams chapters. And I mean, they're not bad, but 
it's clear the you know the influences here oh yeah and daniel and kramer at least both are consistent in their models that's the thing about ryan benjamin characters look wildly different from page to page that last chapter where Raish takes over the body of the white ghost that's just wildly race shifts model throughout that story constantly yeah it's, it's 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 striking the amount of inconsistency there's a lot of like weird missing bits here damien is taken by the assassins to be brought to race towards the end of the crossover and then they just you never see him arrive it's just like Oh, here's Raish holding Damien. You'd think there would have been some some stuff going on there. You would have seen some of that. The white ghost, you know, who realized that, oh, Damien is hidden among the assassins to go to, you know, confront his grandfather. You think you would have gotten a cool scene where white ghost unmasks Damien and hands him to Raish. But no. And I feel a little bit bad bringing this up before you because I I know you're thinking about it. I know it's in your brain. I can feel it. Uh, there's some real bad Tim Drake moments. Oh yeah, real bad. Yeah. Listen, Matt Matt's having a a conniption. He he's he's full of so much rage he can barely even speak. I would have to go back and reread a lot of the stuff going on in the Robin ongoing at this period and in some of the other places. But Tim Tim was getting like seriously shit on for a number of years leading up to this point because Stephanie dies in war games. So his longtime girlfriend dies. Then his father is killed in identity crisis. Then his best friend, and let's just say it, first boy crush, even if Tim didn't admit it, Connor Kent Superboy dies in Infinite Crisis. And Tim, at the time of Infinite Crisis, was living in Bluthaven, which gets a giant nuclear chemical monster dropped on it, and his stepmom dies in that explosion. And then they don't even talk about it here because they just keep talking about his dad and Connor and Steph. But his other best friend, Bart, is killed by the rogues over in flash like a few months before this so he's having kind of a shit time oh yeah but the robin parts of this make him so whiny and so mopey at least the final chapter where he kind of deals with that is written by nicieza in nightwing so you have this dick and tim fighting and talking about their feelings and it comes off as more natural Oh, I did not like one scene of him and Damien fighting there in the manor where it's obviously they're they're calling back to the first fight between Tim and Damien in the manor. And, you know, Damien is is upstairs talking to Alfred and Alfred happens to trip on a rug and Damien saves him and Tim reacts violently and and. Alfred has to say, no, 
No, Master Tabby was simply saving me because I tripped so conveniently. And then a couple of beats later, you have this totally out of character moment for Damien where he screams out to Tim, you're killing me. You're killing me, Tim. Yeah. I think that is the only time in comics history where Damien has called him Tim. He calls him Drake. He's never called him anything other than Drake. Milligan does not get Damien as a character. Mm-mm. And Damien is a fairly new I mean, new character here. I mean, really, he's only appeared in Batman and Son before this. But still, Milligan writes Damien as if he were a 10-year-old. He talks like a kid. Morrison never had Damien speak like a child. Damien was always haughty. And Morrison, An irritating little shit. Yeah. And Morrison writes him that way. Nicieza writes him that way. Dini writes him that way. Milligan writes him as if he's a 10-year-old. And it's discordant. Yeah, I'm not surprised that uh, you know, you talking about Milligan as not being one of your favorites. Uh, that was probably one of the lower points in the story for me. Not surprised that he wrote that chapter. But here's the thing. Milligan writes great stuff, too. Milligan wrote Gollum of Gotham. Hey, man, sometimes you get invested in a story and sometimes you're just cashing a check. That's exactly it. If you look at Milligan, Milligan wrote uh, Milligan, uh, the X-Force with Mike Allred, the the criticism of pop culture X-Force that was really good and then sort of meandered. He wrote one of the worst runs on X-Men of all time. Wrote the last few arcs, probably the last couple of years of the Vertigo Hellblazer series, which was quite good. But you just, you never know what Peter Milligan you're going to get. And this was obviously the Batman annual and these, again, that Batman annual where Damien comes off like, a petulant kid versus a kid who thinks he's better than he is. This was, I think you're right. This was, Hey, what was the thing that Michael Caine said about why he did jaws for, I needed to buy a house. Now, granted, no comic is going to pay for a house, but you know, the better chapters of this are enjoyable. And it is another one where Morrison digs into weird DC history and they have fun with it. Did you recognize the three super villainesses who appear in this story? We've no, seen before. no, but the, the one with the Southern accent makes me want to hit my head against a wall. They were the three villains from the first appearance of Poison Ivy. The ones that she was competing against to be the greatest criminal in history or in on, in the world who had only appeared in that story before. This was Morrison just going back and finding a weird little bit of Batman history and inserting it into this story. Because why the hell not? Now see, isn't that much more fun than creating your own dumb character? If you have no reason to, you know keep those characters around and you just want to have a little fun? Yeah. Yeah, just go like, hmm, there's got to be a dumb character somewhere in 70 years of Batman stories that fits this. Aha! Oh, but yeah, I uh, mm, I really hated those bits. 
someday we are going to have an actual creator guest on here because I've talked to writer Nadia Shamas about Talia Al Ghul. She appeared on WMQ. We talked about Talia. I met her again at a con last year and we talked a little and I would love to have her on to talk about Talia because I just was saying that, you know, it took Talia 30 years to get out from that stereotyped, my father, my beloved, my father, my beloved thing. She then spends a number of years, she's CEO of LexCorp. She's the head of the League of Assassins with Nyssa. And now we get to this point and she's just Damien's mom. Going from one man to the next. Yeah, from in this whole story where Race just kind of pops up and is like, hey, I'm a mummy and I'm going to take over the League of Assassins and they're all going to listen to me. And Talia, as opposed to fighting any of that, the only thing she's fighting in this entire story is Raish possessing Damien. But let's be clear, he's only a mummy for like three issues and then he becomes a corpse that strangely looks like him. Yeah. And I mean, I guess you get the impression that somewhere along the way, when Raish possesses a body, it starts to morph into Raish, I guess. That's the only thing that can explain it. It's why White Ghost suddenly looks like Raish after he possesses White Ghost. The uh, the facial hair, it's just mystical. The White Ghost who suddenly is like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm your son. Oh, the other thing, Milligan does not seem to understand how the Lazarus Pit works. Because when Tim agrees to Raish's bargain and is willing to, you know serve him so he can resurrect his beloved his beloved family members and friends white ghost is like yeah you got to walk into the lazarus pit to baptize yourself some people don't come out of it sane no it's been pretty firmly established if you're perfectly healthy and you walk into a lazarus pit it kills you that i didn't know Mm -hmm. it's horrible like poisonous chemicals if you're alive white ghost should have died when he fell in yep but again that was Milligan. That was the Milligan chapter two? Yep. The Batman annual, that was Milligan. And uh, also, it feels like if they had planned out all along that White Ghost was Raish's son, if White Ghost falls into the Lazarus pit, that if Damien had gone in it, Raish would have possessed Damien's body. Wouldn't Raish have just jumped into White Ghost's body when he fell in? If he was just some sort of force floating around there. That was kind of the impression I got, that it was just like his essence was in there and it would jump into the first body that fell in. Because I kind of thought White Ghost wasn't all all the way there. Didn't seem like it. And again, that, that first chapter is like, okay, there's bits and pieces, that prelude chapter, there's bits and pieces of Birth of the Demon in there, but... It's not all quite birth of the demon. And then there's that weird bit where it's like, yeah, Rachel Ghoul wanted to defeat Napoleon so he could seduce Josephine. Yeah, that was weird. And of course, Rach happened to be in England during the Jack the Ripper killings because every immortal in every version of every story in <sighs> DC or Marvel happened to be in London during the Jack the Ripper killings. Every immortal is just bumping into each other. It's like 
the reason why no time traveler ever actually kills Hitler is because there's too many time travelers trying to kill Hitler and they just get in each other's way. You know, Jack the Ripper really should have been a copyrighted character so he wouldn't have to keep popping up in fiction. And what's what's particularly befuddling to me, I wanted to do this now so we could continue with the Morrison run. Because now that we've read this, this is right after Club of Heroes. So moving forward, we can now hit the rest of the Morrison stuff pretty much in order with the exception of Batman and Robin one to three. And so I was like, okay, this, this there's gotta be stuff in here. That's important for the Morrison run since this was when Morrison was sort of head of bat, but not really nothing much comes of this. Uh, we do need to talk about the epilogue at some point. Yeah. So the epilogue. Yeah, that, that happened. Which just, and again, Batman basically locks Raish up in Arkham under a false name and has him kept drugged so he can't escape. One of the more sadistic things we've seen Batman do in a mainstream continuity book. Yeah. I think of any villain for him to do something like that, it would probably have to be Raish. Even if Batman was willing to kill, you can't kill Raish. He keeps finding a way to come back. But it is a weird choice and sadistic. And it, it comes of nothing because eventually he just escapes and takes up as the head of the League of Assassins again. But doing it to Raish suggests that he could do it to anyone else at any time. It reminds me of an episode of The Twilight Zone where a guy makes some sort of deal to become immortal. And I think, I can't remember if he has to kill somebody to do it or, but he winds up becoming immortal, kills someone, is arrested for, is going to be executed. But then it's like, no, don't, no, no, don't worry. The governor has stayed your execution. You just have life in prison. And that's the thing here. It's like, okay, Raish has been given life in prison, drugged and left immobile in Arkham. And he's immortal. And Bruce shows no remorse for it. No. And unless I misread something, I'm pretty sure they put in the requisite uh, sexual uh, assault joke. I don't remember. Fresh fish, scared and twitching, just as I like them. Oh yeah, Great White Shark. This is back when they were trying to make Great White Shark happen. One really good story with Great White Shark, or two, I guess you count Living Hell, and never quite worked after that. It seemed like they didn't know what to do with Great White Shark after that. But yeah, you're right. There, there it feels like there were pieces of this missing. Like you don't know how Raish got that body that he's walking around in. And there's nothing missing in the way of, you know, issues. I was like, we must be missing something, but no. Oh, and yeah, the other thing that I you mentioned before is that suddenly out of nowhere, the sensei is Raish's father. Oh, huh? yeah. Nothing like that but mentioned about that before or after. 
And especially when you've got Mother Soul, Raish's mother, who eventually shows up years and years later in the recent Lazarus planet, the run up to Lazarus planet. And it's like, okay, she's there, but no mention of the sensei again. Again, the sensei is one of those characters that is probably better just left forgotten. Yeah, I don't think you can make this work. Right. It's the reason why nobody writes Fu Manchu stories anymore. Yeah. And why you have to kind of bend over backwards to make the Mandarin work. And it certainly doesn't have the same racial implications, but really Punisher. You can't do Punisher stories these days. No. Now Punisher has to be, you know, supernatural and have a different symbol on his chest because that symbol has been poisoned. Deeply, deeply poisoned. I know the Bruce Willis remake didn't really do anything to to combat this issue, but Death Wish. uh, I love Death Wish as just a dumb action movie, but it is deeply, deeply racist. Oh, yeah. We, We also had some I Ching in here who is also not as bad as Sensei when it comes to racial stereotypes, but still is the the blind asian martial artist granted we, we saw that done right recently in john wick 4 but still that's a, a trope that just really we can't get enough of apparently yeah and, and the, the sensei's seven men of death who keep getting talked about as being this big thing and none of them have much of anything one of them is merlin green arrows arch enemy but that's about it just some schmucks, really. Yeah, they don't do much. They don't say much. It's like, oh, they're there so the heroes can beat on them to prove that they're awesome. Well, I mean, that's that's what heroes do, Matt. It was a not a good scene, but I do love that, you know, when Rachel Ghoul is trying to convince Tim Drake to join him, it's flat out Emperor Palpatine look talking to Luke Skywalker in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> yes, join me and we will rule the world as father and son. Have you ever heard the story of Darth Plagueis the Wise? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Still Tim there. is so ready to be there. Like he's like, okay, I don't even know if the deal is still good. I don't know what Raish is really going to do, but yeah, sign me up for this league shit. I'm okay. I'm cool and, with it. And at least then Nicieza in that the the final part is like, yeah, no, he wasn't really going to do it. He just wanted to see a sample of the Lazarus Pit formula. Like, yeah, no, that was not anywhere before this in the Milligan chapters that was DCA trying to write his way around Milligan making Tim Drake just be like yeah sure let's do it being tempted is one thing being that willing to go for it is another yeah and I feel like there could have been a more nuanced bit there where they, they there should have been some kind of compromise. Like Dick is right there, you know, trying to talk him out of it, and then basically willing willing to fight him just over getting the Lazarus sample. I know that neither maybe Drake is something close to to a scientist, but just in terms of science, wouldn't you just be curious how this stuff works? Like maybe, and this is pretty far along in the the lore of developing the Lazarus pits, but. Maybe you could take the evil out of it, right? Maybe you could develop medicine from it. So that was a kind of a strange beat of 
no, I, you're not even going to get that sample. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm willing to fight you just so that you, you won't even think about experimenting with this stuff. And Dick is an afterthought in this story. Dick has no arc in this story. Dick is there to forward plot momentum and deliver exposition. And have some great looking issues. Yes. I mean, this is uh, Don Kramer who drew a bunch of the Deanie detectives. He drew a uh, sleigh ride. He drew trust. He's a really good artist and draws a, a great Nightwing. He has a great sense of movement, which is what you need to draw Nightwing. Nightwing is always about fluidity. And there's a real grittiness and realism to to those chapters, which is a great contrast to the, you know, marshmallow faces and just some just bland art otherwise. I would say, if I had not read the epilogue with this, that the whole point of this was to get Rachel Ghoul back on the board. And they wanted to make it an event. So they made this crossover that inserted itself into the middle of all of these books and didn't really serve any of them. But then they immediately take Raish off the board in the epilogue. Yeah, that's a strange call, isn't it? And to do it in such a sadistic way. I'm, you know, if you're reading this in real time, which I, I know you were, you have to think like, okay, what was the point of that? Yeah, I, I got to the end of the crossover and I figured that w since it was clear that Damien was something important, that I figured this was part of Morrison's plan, that they had something they wanted to do as the Batman run continued. And so they wanted Raish back. But then again, Detective happened and is like, well, there's no Raish al Ghul. How odd. <laughs> How very peculiar. And I mean, it removes Talia from leadership of the League, but there would have been ways to do that that didn't involve a seven-chapter crossover plus three prologue and one epilogue issue event. It is a strange story that really seems to serve no purpose and is inconsistent across the board. Although I will say we did not talk about the best scene in the entire event. What's the best scene in the entire event, Matt? Dick and Alfred arriving in Lhasa, being ambushed by Ubu and the League of Assassins. Dick takes out a bunch of them, and then Ubu has Alfred by the neck. And... Ah, you and I have something in common. What do we have in common, servant? I feel as you do to Rachel Ghoul about Batman. I would do anything for him. Elbows Ubu, knocks him out. Yes, Alfred still kicks ass. A gentleman's gentleman until the very end. Indeed. This is a nice little character moment. I do also like the moment where... Tim makes the right choice, doesn't take the Lazarus sample, and Dick and he embrace. It's like, they're brothers. That is, when they're written the best, they are brothers. Yeah, my qualms with that scene generally, it ended in the right spot. So much of this feels like 
story by committee. And I don't know whose story it was. That's the thing that's really befuddling is that usually you read one of these crossovers and it's like, okay, this was the plot of one book that got spread out over a number of books and it is is there to forward one book or another. But I don't know what book it could possibly be forwarding. Very confusing. And I was not, I, like, I did some digging to try to find an interview with somebody involved. And most of the links were dead. There was one, it's unfortunately now really badly formatted. I just don't, I don't know what this served other than we want Rachel Ghoul back but now we don't know what to do with him. So let's just get him out of the way. And this is also the point where, oh, Nissa is gone and it's just weird. I, I, I don't have anything else. I'm all done. So that means it's time to the resurrection of Rachel Ghoul on the big board. I mean, this isn't in that lowest tier of stories. This isn't offensive. This isn't as painful as some of that stuff, but it's not terribly high either. No. So we've got, well, if I could try to find it on the damn list. Okay, a story of similar length. I would probably reread this before I reread Night Quest The Search at 237. It does not have the problematic elements of Night Quest the Search. No, that it does not. What about Zero Year? And this, this is going like way up with Zero Year 159. I would reread Zero Year before I'd reread this. I mean, I would definitely reread 160, The Clown at Midnight, before I re- I'd reread this. That's better, Morrison. It might take you about the same amount of time, too. Yeah. Again, I mean, we talked about him. I would, I mean, granted, it's e- it'd be easier to read, but Mad Men Across the Water at 175 is more fun. And 188, Club of Heroes, Morrison and J.H. Williams. So it's both easier to read and it's consistently better art. Oh, uh, yeah, that's that's another thing that's got to factor into this. This the wildly, wildly inconsistent. Um... Right. This suffers the injustice problem. Where the artists, I mean, none of this is as bad as the bad parts of Injustice. The worst parts of Injustice. Not a lot of Injustice is great. But it's still wildly inconsistent. Does it go above uh, the first story of the night? Does it go above You Can't Hide from a Dead Man? It's got more meat to it. I I think, I, I feel obligated. Okay, 187 is Son of the Demon. That is a better Rachel Ghoul story than this. More fun. And I, I, actually, 188 Club of Heroes is right below that. Huh. Does this go right above You Can't Hide from a Dead Man? I think that's a good spot to put it. Yeah. Because I'd reread Alpha Male plus Batman before I'd read this. So that's it for this week. Next week, I think we're going to be more happy because it's Father's Day week. And we're going to be talking about three stories of Alfred Pennyworth. Yay! We'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote. June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. Jen, come on. Josh Wheel. 
Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, Ooh. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgios Radioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and the Comics XF, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.